Children are dismissed to a junior church at this time. I thank Steve for continuing to lead worship and the worship team. Uh, Joyce and Megan, of course, as well. And picking songs that fit that. I agree with Steve. We do not sing about heaven enough. You know, that is our eternal home. And we really don't talk about it much. We don't think about it much. And we will a little bit more today. By the way, Megan corrected me. The next generation beyond millennials is actually Generation Z. Generation Z. Um, And I encourage you, if you don't, you know, we are missionaries. You realize that? Every one of you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a missionary to help reach others with the gospel. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're watching the live stream or listening and you're a seeker, or if you're here and you're not really a believer, then you're not necessarily a missionary yet. But once we become believers in Jesus Christ, once we commit our life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are missionaries. We all are missionaries. We all have a mission field. It's our sphere of influence. And the Great Commission is given to all of us. And the Acts 1-8 commission I shared is given to all of us. One interesting thing, there was a church in the book of Acts called the Church of Antioch. The Church of Antioch became a major sending church. They, they, they anointed Paul and Barnabas and many others for, the, for their missionary journeys. And we do not know. We don't know who started the church in Antioch. It seems as though it was started by common lay people. It wasn't a pastor. It wasn't an apostle. It was the ordinary people who fled Jerusalem when the persecution came. And they planted the church in Antioch. And God used that in marvelous, magnificent, amazing ways. You are all missionaries. Part of being a missionary is that we study the culture we want to reach with the gospel. And so, you know, as you pray for evangelism opportunities, are you ever studying and thinking, how can I study the best ways to reach my children, my grandchildren, maybe for some of you, my great-grandchildren with the gospel. Maybe you've got to study your, your own neighborhood, how to reach them with the gospel. Maybe you've got to pray about that. Oftentimes, we get in our own Christian circles, and we can never longer be used of God because all we're doing is condemning the culture. There's plenty to condemn, but realize their eyes are blinded by the devil. If they don't know Christ, the first thing they need is to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You know, we're on a, a sermon series having, about having a biblical worldview. Creation, everything was created good, Genesis 1 and 2. The world fell, Genesis 3. Uh, We're redeemed in Christ, but we're not restored yet. Part of having a biblical worldview is recognizing that the worldview of the world is not the biblical worldview. And it's not the biblical worldview because they don't know Jesus. Don't expect them to fit with the biblical worldview. They don't know Jesus. If you fix the world and you tell them you got to accept all these biblical principles, but they don't know Jesus, they're still on their way to hell. They need to know Jesus. I challenge you, in addition to the other sermon challenges today, to study the culture with a prayerful attitude to reach them with the gospel. There's a book. Bethel is an older congregation. That's no secret. I'm not telling you anything new there. Okay. Um, When we think of 40 as young... You were an older congregation. 40 is middle age. Statistically, it's over middle age, okay? It's just the reality, reality check, if, if you didn't know that. We need to reach the teens and 20s and 30s with the gospel. We are sinning if we do not care about the gospel. So there's a book called Growing Young. I got it for the administrative council and leaders last year. I'm going to start talking about it more with the elders as we go into next year. Any of you could get it. If you need help getting it, I'll help you. I got a copy in my, in my office. I would let you borrow. You know, it's about 
the changing a church culture so that we grow reaching a younger generation. Now listen, if we were a church of a bunch of 20s and 30s with no people over 40 years old, we would have the opposite problem, okay? We, to be community, we need all age groups, okay? We need all age groups to be community. So I'm passionate that I want to reach unchurched, uninterested, militant atheist people with the gospel. And when we reach them, we're really reaching people like the Apostle Paul, militantly against the gospel. But look what, they got, what God did with the Apostle Paul. So let's move into the sermon. We're going to go to Revelation 21 in a minute. We're going to talk about heaven for a few minutes here. Uh, over the past six weeks, we've talked about having a biblical worldview. And this means we must view the world through a biblical framework. We must view the world through the lens of the Bible. The Bible is our, is our corrective lenses to help, us, to help us to view right and wrong. Again, just review. Everybody has a worldview. You all have a worldview. To have a worldview is not being worldly. Okay? Your worldview is just how you view the world. Okay? Do you view the world as the world does or do you view the world as the Bible does? Okay? I, I shared a little bit last night um, with Saturday night service. I already started playing Christmas music. So don't judge me. Um, my dad would. He said you can't listen to Christmas music till Thanksgiving. Any of you believe that? No Christmas music. Steve does. Sam does. Joe. A few others. Some. No Christmas music till Thanksgiving. But... The more we grow in Christ, and I hope the more we grow with a biblical worldview, hopefully we can notice much of Christmas music is not Christ-miss music. I'm not saying don't enjoy it. You could have fun with it. You could listen to it. Some of them, some of them are nice seasonal songs, but they're not Christmas music. And what is the worldview of some of these Christmas songs? You know, the real test of this sermon series is to see if we, when we go out into the world and we're in our day-to-day -day life, are we recognizing worldview? I watched Elf with um, the movie Elf with Will Ferrell um, a few weeks ago with my kids. And funny movie, good movie, not a Christmas movie. We, we call it a Christmas movie. It's not. It's, it's you know, what do they say? The best way is we need Christmas spirit. That's what they talk about, Christmas spirit. Well, what's that worldview? It's more of a new age idea. A new age idea would be kind of a blend of a lot of different uh, worldviews, okay? Maybe sometimes a materialistic worldview. Materials will make me happy. That's what a lot of the Christmas songs are about, more materialism. or They're more seasonal, which is interesting because if you know anything about Christmas, before Christianity came and swept through Europe... They always had a festivities. They called it the winter solstice. And Rome would have this large, week-long festivities. And they were two Roman goddesses, okay? And Roman gods and things like that. And I wasn't prepared to talk about it, so I don't have the actual names with me. They always had that. And it seems like as Christianity leaves the United States, I don't know if you realize, America is losing the Christian worldview. I've already talked about that. And as we lose that worldview... We're going back to Christmas is just a winter solstice celebration. So as Christians, it doesn't mean we don't sing the songs or watch the movies, but we must continue to argue with ourselves and tell ourselves, what's the biblical view of Christmas? You know, as Charlie Brown said, can anybody tell me what Christmas is all about? And think about that as we go into the, go into the Christmas season. What is the worldview the world is telling us? Because many times, through nonverbal, passive-aggressive ways, 
The worldview of the world is impacting the church way more than we realize. And that's why I'm really on this sermon series. That's why I'm going back to the Bible. Uh, Chuck Colson shares the three worldview categories examined in the earlier sections, creation, fall, and redemption, provide a conceptual structure by which we can identify what is wrong with non-Christian ways of thinking and formulate a Christian perspective on every subject. The first task, then, is to be discerning, to examine various worldviews by measuring how well they answer the fundamental questions of life. All right, listen. Examine worldviews. How well do they answer the fundamental questions of life? Creation. Where did we come from? And who are we? The fall. What has gone wrong with the world? Redemption. What can we do to fix it? Trace out the way any worldview answers these three questions, and you will be able to see how non-biblical ideas, ideas fail to fit reality. Creation. Fall. Redemption. Trace. How does any worldview trace that? Everybody you encounter, everyone, you can even ask children, and they all have a view. They may not be able to express it, but they all have a view of creation. They all have a view of the fall. They might say, what is wrong and how can it be fixed? What is wrong and how can it be fixed? Many people think it can be fixed with some type of utopian strategy, utopia idea. I listened to a great interview this morning with Oz Guinness, a great Christian philosopher, theologian. He taught he was in China. He had two siblings die in, when he was a child in the 1940s. Um, his parents were missionaries to China. In fact, they said the hardest thing for them leaving China and leaving the mission field when they left was they left the area where their two kids were buried. But China and some of those um, totalitarian regimes killed something like 27 million people. Okay? In fact, he said, those who have a view of a utopian society and they think that we can just create a utopian society on earth, the Marxists and others like that, they usually are the ones causing the most catastrophe and the most killing. If you think of how many, how many died at the hands of Stalin or many others. But why do they get in this utopian idea? Because they ignore the fall. They ignore depravity. They forget that. Okay, so by contrast, the biblical worldview provides answers that are internally consistent and really work. The biblical worldview has answers to what is wrong with the world and how can it be fixed? What is wrong? Sin entered the world in Genesis 3. How can it be fixed? Jesus died and rose again for our sins, and eventually we're going to be restored. God, Jesus, God and Jesus, you know, he's going to restore all things to himself, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Following Jesus, though, and sharing the gospel transforms a culture. Listen to this. In A.D. 401, 401 A.D., that's 400 years after the birth of Jesus, a 16-year-old boy, 16-year-old British boy named Patricius, uh, I'm sorry, breathe, okay, Patricius, there we go, was seized by a raiding Irish war party. He was abducted from his Romanized homeland, and he was sold to a pettish Irish chieftain named Miliuk, who sent the boy out to shepherd his flock. Patricius spent months alone in the hills, hunger gnawing at his innards and the clammy cold biting into his limbs until finally he sought help from the only source he had left. He began to pray. Before this time, Patricius had not really believed in the God his Christian parents had taught him about. Okay, just like a modern American kid, he grew up and he did not believe in the God his Christian parents taught him about. And get this, he thought that priests were fools. But he found in God a source of strength that helped him endure six long years of bitter isolation and deprivation. Tending flocks, this is what he wrote, tending flocks was my daily work, and I would pray constantly during the daylight hours. 
The love of God and the fear of him surrounded me more and more. And faith grew and the spirit was roused. Then one night, Patricius was asked by a mysterious voice telling him, I'm sorry, he was awakened. Patricius was awakened by a mysterious voice telling him that he was going home. Look, your ship is ready, said the voice. Although uncertain of the direction or distance, Patricius set out for the sea. More than 200 miles later, he found a ship bound for England. When he reached his homeland, however, Patricius discovered that he no longer fit in with his people. Hardened physically and psychologically by, unshake, uh, by unshareable experiences, hopelessly behind his peers in education, he cannot settle down, writes historian Thomas Cahill. Then one night, the former slave heard Christ's voice again, this time telling him to return to Ireland. He entered theological training, and he eventually returned as Patrick, missionary to the Irish. We know him as St. Patrick. This was no romantic return set to the tune of Irish ballads, though. When St. Patrick began his mission, he faced pagan Irish priests, known as Druids, who still practiced ritual human sacrifice to their monstrous Celtic gods, often portrayed eating people. That's like foreign to us, isn't it? I hope so. You know, they still practiced ritual human sacrifice. The fierce Irish warriors, believing that the human head was the seat of the soul, hung, get this, hung their enemies' skulls from their belts as trophies. Into this bloodthirsty culture, St. Patrick brought the Christian message of love and forgiveness and established monasteries throughout the land. The monastic movement in Ireland, get this, began to revolutionize the world, replacing the old values of a warrior society with the new values of Christianity. Within St. Patrick's lifetime, within his own lifetime, warriors cast aside their swords of battle. Intertribal warfare decreased markedly. And get this, the slave trade ended. The gospel transforms cultures. St. Patrick followed the Holy Spirit's lead, went into Ireland, and the whole world of the Irish changed. A culture of battle and brute power was transformed by an ethic that sanctified manual labor, poverty, and service. A culture of illiteracy and ignorance became a culture of learning. The gospel can, Jesus wants to, he desires to transform the culture by the gospel. However, that is not the restoration that we long for. Eventually, God is going to restore all things to himself. So my theme through the rest of today's sermon is, God will restore all things in the future. Long for that day. God will restore all things in the future. Long for that day. Let's read Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven. This is John the Apostle. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is God speaking, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. 
And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the, first, for the former things have passed away. How many of us look forward to a day when there's no more death? Right? We've all been impacted by death. How many of us look for a day when God's going to make all things right? No longer any sin. No, more, no longer any um, sickness or illness or pain. It says, this passage says, God will actually dwell with them. We see from the Bible, from the passage I read, that God will restore all things. It's a restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God created everything good, Genesis 1 through 2. Sin entered the world, Genesis 3. That is what's wrong with the world, sin. With, with sin came sickness and illness and death and, and pain and suffering and violence and envy and jealousy and all kinds of other things. The world has fallen. Jesus has redeemed us. And this passage is about restoration. It seems that there are thoughts that God is restoring creation now through the church. And he is doing that. It's kind of a partial restoration. As he redeems people, as we commit our lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior, and as we follow the Great Commission and share the gospel with others, God is changing the culture. But that's not the real restoration. Eventually, God is going to restore all things. We see, we see that in the passage I already read. We also see this idea, by the way, in Isaiah 65 and a few other places in the Bible. In Isaiah 65, we see the millennial reign as well as the future heaven talked about together. Okay, In Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament prophesies about the millennial reign, but also the new heaven and new earth. And most think that Isaiah is blending the two together. The millennial reign where Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years following the tribulation period. And he's going to reign on this earth and he's going to reign in Jerusalem. Most believe he is blending that together with the new heaven and new earth. Because if you look at Isaiah 65 and 66, we still see death. We see death in the millennial reign. But in Revelation 21 and 22, there's no more death. So it seems clear that Isaiah is talking about the millennial reign right there. In Isaiah 65, Isaiah references a moon, the moon. In Revelation 21 and 22, there's no longer any moon. So Isaiah is writing about the millennial reign of Jesus, where he's going to reign over the earth. He's going to be the literal king from Jerusalem. And he blends that together with the new heaven and the new earth. It is interesting, by the way, that Revelation chapters 20 through 22 are the latter bookend of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Okay? In the first three chapters of the Bible, we see everything created good, and then we see the fall. In the last three chapters of the Bible, we see the opposite. Okay? In Revelation chapter 20, that's the reverse of Genesis 3. Genesis 3, sin entered the world. Revelation 20, sin is taken care of. The devil and his minions are thrown in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. Okay? In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, that's the exact opposite of Revelation chapters 21 and 22. God is restoring all things. These are the bookends of the Bible. The bookends of the Bible. As we look at the passage from Revelation 21, the Moody Bible Commentary shares a really good insight. It says, this section provides information not revealed in other visions of heaven. The eternal state is pictured as a physical place. Okay, In Revelation 21 and 22, the eternal state is pictured as a physical place. 
It includes land, buildings, trees, and water. Believers will interact with one another and engage in meaningful service for God. This is why this is important. This corrects some long-held misconceptions. Heaven is not a place of passive rest or endless blissful contemplation of God. Okay, we in the church have committed the error that's been called Christo-Platonism. It's merging Platonic thinking, going back to the philosopher Plato, with Christianity. Plato kind of taught that the body is bad and the physical creation is bad. That's not what the Bible teaches. God created everything good, and it was a physical, real place in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2. When we are restored, we're going to have a real physical body in a real place. We see a garden there, a vineyard there, a city there, all kinds of things. It's not going to be sitting on clouds playing harps, okay? Heaven is going to be a real, wonderful, awesome place, and we see that in this passage. I want to talk about the first four verses for a few minutes. John sees that all things are to be made new. All things, the ESV study Bible gives some insight, all things new. The destruction of the last enemy, that is death, and the last judgment will finally lead to the renewal of the entire created order, heaven and earth, to be the perfect home in which the Lamb will live forever with his bride, the people whom he has redeemed out of all the nations through his atoning death. Further, the removal of the first heaven and earth eliminates the, the removal of the first heaven and earth eliminates the fatal infection of evil in the cosmic order and gives way to God's creation of a new cosmic order where sin and suffering and death are forever banished. Okay, in Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4, the first, the current heaven and earth are removed, and there's a new heaven and new earth with no more death, no more sin, no more suffering. The old order was in bondage to decay. Romans 8.21 talks about that. The old order, the current life that we live, is in bondage to decay. And the current, the current life, the current order, is groaning in pains of childbirth until now. Romans 8.22 says. The current creation is awaiting the day when the heavens will be dissolved and new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell will be established to forever replace the old. All of creation, Romans 8, 21 and 22 says, all of creation is awaiting redemption. John sees a holy city descending from heaven in verse 2. The holy city is the new Jerusalem. We're going to hear more about that. It seems clear that these verses are summarizing what the rest of the next two chapters will talk about. The holy city is literally coming down from heaven. The city is modified as holy. And that means the, the city is set apart. The city is perfect. The city is righteous. The, holy is sanct the city is sanctified. This city is coming from God. It's coming from God's realm. In Isaiah 52 verse 1, we see Jerusalem called the holy city as well. By the way, I love this quote. Revelation as a whole, the whole book of Revelation, Revelation as a whole may be characterized as a tale of two cities. With the subtitle, The Harlot and the Bride. Okay? The harlot is fallen Babylon. The bride is the New Jerusalem and the church. Okay? So Revelation as a whole is a tale of the two cities. The harlot, which is fallen Babylon, and the bride of Christ. We read what John hears. John hears the words of the angel. The angel says, God himself will mingle among his people. God will dwell with them. Get this. The greatest blessing of heaven will be unhindered fellowship with God himself. 
The goal of God's covenant is God with us. And that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. And it's achieved certainly through Jesus right now. And it's finally completely achieved and completely established in Revelation 21 and 22. John hears a loud voice again. And a loud voice is coming from the throne. The people are God's people. God will be with them. God himself will minister to his people. That's what verse 4 says. God will reverse the curse that entered the world through human sin and suffering. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. The first order is over. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Everything is restored. Everything is made right. And God will be glorified more in the end. No more cancer. No more multiple sclerosis. No more Alzheimer's. I heard an interview two years ago with somebody who had fought cancer. And her and her husband would have a saying. Curse the fall. They said, darn. They said the other word, but I'm not going to say it here. Darn the fall. Come, Lord Jesus. We're waiting on Jesus to come again, make all things right. No more dementia. No more autism. If you have a special needs child, they will be perfected in the restoration. You will even be able to communicate with your special needs child. Think about that. There are many people, and you know someone, certainly from our church, who has special needs children and sacrifice to care for them and can never communicate for, with them. They will in the new heavens and new earth. No more Down syndrome, no more ALS, no more viruses, no more infections, no more COVID-19, no more war, no more violence, no more politics. I'll add that. It's not in your notes. It's extra. No more politics. Jesus will be on the throne, the perfect King of kings and Lord of lords. We won't be voting on someone. We won't be voting for a fallen human to, 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 to lead us. No more war, no more violence, no more sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS. No more miscarriages. By the way, if you lost a baby in the womb, you will be reunited in heaven and they will be restored. If you lost a child to death, you will be reunited in heaven and they will be restored. No more disability, no more paralysis, no more depression, no more depression. No more mental illness, no more addiction, no more abortion, no more financial stress, no more grief. No more lies, no more unfaithfulness, no more adultery, no more absent parents, no more divorce, no more anger, no more rape, no more hatred, no more jealousy, no more laziness, no more, you fill in the blank. I know my list wasn't exhaustive. No more pain, no more suffering. God will restore all things and God will live with us. In a physical, real place with resurrected, perfect bodies. Can't wait for that. I think I'm going to be able to sing. And maybe I'll be taller. This is the ultimate restoration of all things. The earth will be the way it should be. No more disasters that take life in untimely ways. If you read through Revelation chapters 21 and 22, we see great detail about the new heavens and the new earth. God will restore all things. And and I think the detail in Revelation chapters 21 and 22 is literal. But I think it's the best that John could do to describe it. He is stretching. People who study Greek vocabulary know that he is stretching the Greek vocabulary. So it's going to be far, far better than we can even read in that description. 
And God wants us to be there with him. God wants all to be saved. God wants all to be saved. I love this. How far will God go? Johnny Erickson Tata wrote this. You probably know of Johnny Erickson Tata. Been a quadriplegic for 51 or 52 years now. And, and she referenced Acts 17, 26, and 27. In Acts 17, 26, and 27, the Bible says this. He, that's God, he determined the time set for them and it is in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God determines everything. God is sovereign. And this is what Johnny wrote. How far will God go to reach those whom he has called? Consider the case of Kumoko, a young Japanese woman. Her husband, she's Japanese, she's from Japan, she lives in Japan. Her husband was transferred to a small Wisconsin town to work in management. Now, that may seem random, but it's not. Listen. Kamuko looked forward to the move to America because she had read once that Christians were not afraid to die. She did not know any Christians. Get this. She did not know any Christians. But she vowed that she would ask why this was so if she ever had the chance. Kamuko was terrified of dying and wanted an answer. She had heard Christians are not afraid to die. She's terrified of dying. She wants an answer. God, she doesn't know any Christians. God in his sovereignty transfers her husband to Wisconsin. I've been to Wisconsin. There's nothing in Wisconsin, all right? God sends her family to Wisconsin. Why? So that they can hear the gospel. Listen, Kamuko did not realize how interested God was in answering her question. Shortly after she and her husband settled in, a missionary couple from Japan retired and moved to the same little Wisconsin town. A missionary couple just happens to go to the same little Wisconsin town. Upon learning that there were six Japanese families living in the area, the missionaries decided to start an outreach ministry at the local church. God sends this woman who has never met any Christians but really wants to ask them why they're not afraid to die. God sends them to Wisconsin in the same little town. God sends a retired missionary. And in that same little town, there's six other Japanese families. So the missionary sets up a class. On their first Sunday morning of the ministry, the missionary asked the class a question that stunned Kamuko. This is the missionary's question. Many of us live with fear. Are any of you afraid? There was a nervous silence. After a moment, the missionary turned to Kamuko, unaware of her need. How about you, Kamuko? What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Kamuko gave her life to Jesus two months later. Her husband soon followed. Together they named their new child Grace after the church where God had gone to such great lengths to answer her questions about fear and death. How far will God go to accomplish his purpose with you today? He brought a young Japanese wife and a retired missionary more than 10,000 miles so a seeking heart might find him. And he'll go farther, even to the depths of your discouragement or despair, to find you. He'll go farther than you can imagine because he is closer to you than you will ever know. God is going to restore all things. He's going to make all creation right. I hope that we long for that day. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I pray that we really do long for the day when you make all things right, when you truly do restore all things to yourself. Lord God, I thank you that we can have confidence and trust that we will be with you in heaven. 
I thank you, Lord God, that we can have that trust, knowing, as I think as 1 John says, um, that we can know that we will have eternal life with you. Lord God, if anyone here or anyone listening, watching later on, is unsure of their relationship with you, unsure of their eternal life in you, I pray, Lord God, that today, today, this very day, this very instant, the Holy Spirit will convict them. They are a sinner in need of a Savior, and you are the one and only Savior. And may today be the day where they firmly make the decision to be with you, to live with you, in order to become like you, to learn and do all that you say, to arrange their affairs around you. May today be the day where they confess they are a sinner in need of a Savior, believing in you as the one and only Savior, trusting in you and committing to you. Lord God, help us all to live for you. Help us all to follow you. We need your help. We can't do it on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us living inside of us. Pray your blessings and care. In Jesus' name, amen.